Welcome to another episode of the Water Women Podcast, the podcast all things ocean. I'm your host, Jill. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 58 of the Water Women Podcast. I feel like after they've been on the podcast, all these women are now my friends, at least I, that's what I think of them as. So if you've been on this podcast before, sorry, but you've unintentionally gained a new friend. But I always love having my real life friends on the podcast. I know so many amazing women in the marine field or marine lifestyle, and I love showcasing them. And I get to experience that again today because today's episode features one of my friends, Rachel from Newfoundland. She's a a new friend, but you'll hear all about how we met and, uh, our stories in the podcast. We do tend to go on a few tangents, but in this episode, Rachel talks all about sea cucumbers and her studies with sea cucumbers. And honestly, I have never known too much about sea cucumbers. I worked at an aquarium for a little bit and had some basic knowledge of them, but I learned a lot in this episode and I'm really hoping that you guys are ready to learn a lot too. So let's jump in and learn about sea cucumbers with Rachel. So welcome to the Water Women Podcast. We should start out with the important things. How about you tell us your name and what pronouns you use? So my name is Rachel Morgan and I go by she or her. Awesome. Hi, Rachel. How are you doing today? I'm doing so good and I'm just so excited to just be participating in your podcast. I'm super excited to have you on. So Rachel is another one of my friends that I met while visiting another friend in Newfoundland and Similar to Valeska, we were very quick friends. It happened very quickly. I don't think I've ever met someone who is so much like myself. It's a little weird. (laughs) You know, you go on one hike together in Newfoundland and then you're best friends. (laughs) True, truly. You know, there's a couple near-death experiences there. Oh, yeah. It really was a bonding experience. Yes. Oh, my gosh. When the wave came over and crashed into me. (laughs) I thought I was going to lose you. I really did. (laughs) So how about you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? All that kind of fun stuff. Okay, so I am basically a big nature and outdoor enthusiast. I love spending my time outside. I kind of have grown up just going camping with my family, going on adventures. I was that kid in nature camp every summer. So I definitely have a big passionate side about um, nature and just all things about nature. And I'm currently a graduate student um, studying marine biology. So what did you study before this? Did you start out in marine biology with your undergrad or where, how did you get to where you are now? Yeah, so I actually started um, my degree. I did my bachelor's at the University of Guelph and I actually did it in marine and freshwater biology. Um, The University of Guelph is one of the basically only universities in Ontario that you can major uh, in marine biology as your undergraduate degree. So that was pretty mm-hmm. exciting. And Guelph is actually my hometown. So it was pretty easy for me to do that. Uh, obviously, there's no ocean, but we did have an aqua lab and you had all the marine um, creatures that you could you could see and um, experience. And then now I'm doing my master's in marine biology as well, but at Memorial University at Newfoundland, which I'm super excited because now I finally have the ocean. <laughs> it's a little bit different, but that's awesome that you grew up in Guelph and were able to complete that there because it is one of the like select few Canadian universities we have that even does um, marine sciences at all. And I think it's one of the like 
two or three on like anything west of the Maritimes that does it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And I feel like the University of Guelph, uh, I really appreciate that it's a very science focused school. So I was always really fortunate. We had a lot of good facilities, good labs. Um, I loved a lot of my profs going during my undergraduate degree. So I was, I was really happy with doing my degree there, but I, I feel like after you get your undergrad and you want to keep going in the, in the marine biology field, it is super beneficial if you can, especially if you want to do field work, if you have the ocean at your hands. So moving to a coast was always in my future and like on my mind. So I really loved my time in Guelph and obviously being my hometown, there's like special place like that Guelph has in my heart, but I really do love being in Newfoundland now. Good. So growing up, what made you want to pursue marine biology? Like what, like Guelph, not exactly Oceanside, easy to see the water. So what kind of introduced it to you and how did you decide you wanted to study it? Um, I think it kind of just started when I was actually quite young. Uh, We would go on family road trips quite often. I was also always a water baby. So anytime we were going somewhere in the summertime, I would spend as much time as possible being in the water. And I was always fascinated by the things that were in the water. Now, obviously, most of those things were freshwater things. But then when I was seven, we went on a big family road trip and we went actually to New Brunswick, where you are. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, and the first thing we did was we stopped at, um, I forget the name of it, but it was like a little aquarium where you have like touch tanks. The Huntsman, the Huntsman. Yes, that's where we went. And I was like only seven years old. So I was like in my peak curiosity and I loved everything. And it's actually, I held sea stars and sea cucumbers and urchins. And I just remember being completely in love. And then we went camping on Deer Island, um, which is just off the coast of the mainland of New Brunswick. And I remember spending every single day searching the beach and the docks for sea stars because I just love them so much. So I think it was kind of like deeply rooted in me that I loved the ocean um, from a very young age. And then I think it wasn't until high school and I was like, oh, wait, marine biology is an actual career. Wow. I could do this forever. <laughs> I it really that. is like a life changing moment when you're like in high school and you're like, well, I kind of like the ocean. Someone's like, you could study that. You're like, what? That's a thing as an option. (laughs) Yes. I feel like as a child, you always like, especially me, I loved animals. So you always like went that route of, oh, I can be a vet because that was a very obvious career choice. But then in high school, it's like, wait, you can diversify. Wow. (laughs) I feel like you all, we all went through that. I want to be a vet. I love animals. Mm -hmm. And then realizing that vets also like have to like, deal with sick animals and not good animals and you're yeah like, exactly I don't want to do that yeah and I feel like one of the things I loved even more about finding marine biology was the fact that it, it was so focused on uh, just like caring for the environment and you know there's it's such a diverse career like there's so much you can do right yeah. it's not just studying a few cool sea creatures it's so much more that you can do like ecosystems and populations and climate change there's so much to it so it's really exciting there really is something for everyone like whether you're a fan of physics chemistry biology mm-hmm. or something not science related like mathematics yeah. not science related but you know like something just like interested in like there really is a field for everything here no exactly yeah i i think it's 
it's a, a job that anyone and everyone could probably do, but I, I'm just, I just love the ocean. So I feel like everyone should do it. <laughs> and you mentioned a couple times in the story, some sea stars and stuff that really stuck out to you, which I think is so like, it's heartwarming now knowing what you do, because now you're studying echinoderms. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And I really do think that my curiosity for echinoderms also was rooted in that first like early childhood experience. And I've always loved them. It's, it's funny because I feel like echinoderms have followed me in my life, <laughs> as weird as that sounds. Um, when I was growing up, or not that long ago anyways, I was a camp counselor at a nature camp that I actually attended when I was a child. Then full circle, now a camp counselor there, and you get a nature name. And so my nature name was Starfish. And so literally, I've always had something to do with echinoderms. Either in my undergrad, I did an honors. Um, project with sea stars as well and now we're here at Tiki Summer so we're just we're staying on the echinoderm train. <laughs> so for those who don't know do you want to explain kind of like what an echinoderm is like it's a term but we don't know for what yet? Mm-hmm. So echinoderms is kind of a broad term um, echinodermata is the phylum and within that phylum you have sea cucumbers, sea stars, you have feather stars, sea urchins so it's a very diverse phylum. Um, they're kind of characterized as having pentaradial symmetry, which means they have five lines of symmetry. They are very diverse. They all have very different life histories and fill different ecological roles. So it's really hard to like pinpoint an echinoderm without like wanting to go to certain species and explain each one because they're all very interesting and unique. So what are some like some echinoderm species? So the one I'm studying right now is a sea cucumber, the species Cucumeria frondosa. It's the orange-footed sea cucumber um, that you can find on the coast of Newfoundland, but they have a wide range. Uh, they're a pretty interesting sea cucumber because unlike others, they're a suspension feeder. So they have this awesome little crown of tentacles that they use and they will uh, put them out into the water column and collect little suspended particles, mostly phytoplankton, and then that's how they consume their food. Um, whereas other sea cucumbers, there's some deposit feeders and like eating what is in the substrate. Um, and then the other part of my project also, I look loosely at sea urchins, which are also really cool. And they play a lot of ecological roles with um, kelp beds. And I don't really get into that in my own project, but I definitely have read a few papers where you can really see how one species can have such a strong effect on an ecosystem. And that's to me like really interesting. Definitely. It always blows my mind that the smallest, most like, I'm doing like air quotes right now, like insignificant, <laughs> like things that you like wouldn't think of all the time have such a large impact on our like ecosystem and our lives. Like, mm-hmm. like I, if someone said, what animal do you think has an impact on your life? C- sea cucumber would be probably bottom of the list. But yeah, you don't think about them. <laughs> at all. So yeah. what is your master's actually looking at? Like, what is your kind of like question that you're looking at? Uh, so my master's, is, my project is kind of twofold. Um, part of it is looking at specifically the sea cucumber species, Cucumera frondosa. And I'm looking at it from kind of like a food product perspective. So uh, as of right now, it is actively harvested in Newfoundland, but there are these prospects that it could expand into other regions such as the Arctic. And so I am looking at their biochemistry, kind of the, their nutritional value and how that like would relate to the market. And so that would hopefully enable 
um, an industry to be produced in the Arctic eventually if that's what they want it to do. Um, and then the other part of it is more the ecology. So I'm looking at uh, population structures, the abundance, trying to find trends of like, okay, can we say like what characteristics determine a good habitat for sea cucumbers? And loosely, I'm also looking at sea urchins for the ecology part of things. Cool. That's a, that is a big project. That's kind of a very broad yeah. and big undertaking. Yeah. And it, it's been an interesting thing to learn because going into this, I didn't have any background experience in like biochem. And um, I was really interested more from my undergrad doing a lot of physiology. So this was uh, something that took a lot of learning and I'm still learning. Like I always am reading papers and learning new things about the biochemistry and how it's important for human health um, and ecology is also something I haven't really done before in my undergrad so uh, it's it's always it's been a learning curve but I am appreciating all the skills that you really obtain from your master's yeah you know what a hot take I think doing a master's that you're not like super super familiar with can be mm-hmm. the best experience for you because it's going to introduce you introduce you to so many different aspects of the marine science that you might not have thought of yeah definitely I've always been reminded also by like past supervisors or employers that like I was getting their advice on masters and programs before I went into this and they were like at the end of the day really it's all the skills you take and you learn from your masters that are really important and will really help you in the future for your you know, whatever career you want to do but I'm also happy that I, I love my project and I'm gaining skills <laughs> Yeah, and you get to do it in probably one of the most beautiful provinces. That's God. Oh my gosh. Yes, yes. It's, it's, it was an adjustment, to say the least, when I first moved <laughs> here. I did not move here in the best of times, <laughs> but I do yes. love it now. I have such good friends. We are going to come back to that because I want you to tell the story of what oh, happened no. pretty much as soon as you moved there. Yes. Like, it is my, I think you, I can't wait for you guys to hear it near the end of this podcast after we talk about all the echinoderm stuff because it really, I remember Rachel telling me the story at our friend Caitlin's house and I was dying laughing on the couch because it's so You're funny. Like, like, how does one survive this? Why did you stay there? <laughs> so, yeah. So you mentioned that echinoderms are heavily studied in some parts of the world, like definitely mm-hmm. in the tropics. We know that we know tons about them. So why have they not been extensively studied in higher latitudes and colder areas? Yeah, so I think I think the main reason why they're not studied in higher latitudes, and I think it's more specifically in the Arctic, not the Antarctic. The Antarctic has mm-hmm. had work, but I feel like it's, I don't know. I don't know why there's a... A difference in why people want to study Arctic over Antarctic, but the Arctic itself has been a little bit neglected, I feel, for especially echinoderms. Um, I think part of the reason comes down to research money as well as just it's not an easy area to always access. It is, yeah, so it's costly, it's hard to access, but also I think the first thing you think of when you think of the Arctic is you're thinking, oh no, the sea ice is going, which is true, and like the sea or like the the polar bears or the marine mammals, be thinking of the larger things or what you see more in like the press, so climate change. But I feel like benthic invertebrates don't really, you know, make the front page of things. So that's not the first thing on everyone's research agendas. Mm. 
Yeah, it's definitely not high up there in priority when you first no. start looking at what's what's up there. Like we know so little about higher latitude waters that I feel mm-hmm. like we need to have needed to have like a base level before we could really dive in more. But now yeah. we're at the point where we can dive in and learn more about the individuals yeah, exactly. that are up there. Yeah, and I think what really drove this project to even start was the fact that there was this interest to build a harvesting industry for sea cucumbers and potentially sea urchins in the Arctic. And with that being said, you you want to know the baseline before you start harvesting. You need to know the life history, the ecology. You want to make sure that when you're eventually going to put a harvesting industry in, you're not going to be destructive um, and basically run out of your resources. Uh, mm. So I think that really drove the research to start, and I'm glad it did because it also, like you said, it provides that baseline. And now, if we have more detrimental effects from climate change, maybe we can track how, like, our benthos is doing. Like, what are these? How are these invertebrates surviving? Um, changes in like the timing, the seasonality, all because of climate change, right? Yeah, absolutely. So what is the interest in creating a fishery? Like, why is that an option? Why is that something that's being looked at right now? What, what's the need for the fishery, if that makes sense? Yeah. So before I, like, even knew, I never knew this was a thing. I didn't realize that sea cucumbers were such a highly valuable seafood product. In the Asian food markets, it is literally one of the most expensive seafood products. And I never realized this, that it, wow. I didn't even know they were consumed. I didn't know you could eat them. <laughs> oh, literally the only reason I knew you could eat them is because when I worked at that aquarium you mentioned earlier, yeah. I had a gentleman come up to me and be like, so if I wanted to eat a sea cucumber, where should I go? And I was like, um, uh, <laughs> why would you want to? I don't know. So yeah, I went you- home and like Googled it and was like, oh, you can, but I did not know they were that like high in the yeah. Exactly. In Canada, it's not something that is readily consumed. Uh, I, you won't go to Thanksgiving dinner or Christmas dinner anytime soon and find sea cucumber on the table. That's just not something we typically eat in our in our culture. But it's really fascinating to learn how it's, it's so valuable. And um, so the yeah. fishery, knowing that it's a valuable product, if they were to open up a fishery in the Arctic, it would just provide another source of income to those local communities. And obviously, if you're in an isolated area in the Arctic, there's not many prospects for, like, where can you open a business, right? So opening up a fishery would just be another good source of income for those community members. So definitely kind of, like, out of necessity for uh, the economy Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. And and it's interesting to know that um, there are a few Indigenous communities within the Arctic that actually they traditionally do consume sea cucumbers they also eat sea stars and sea urchins and I think it's a rare thing but there are a few communities that actually do consume it as one of their normal food sources which is awesome to learn yeah cool so how are you using your masters to determine if a fishery is sustainable like what do you do to study this so with my master's, it's kind of going to be kind of like a starting point. I don't think from my project alone, you'll be able to tell, like, how do we make it sustainable? But it will be mm. a starting point to start building the industry, to start having information, to actually get to a point where there's going to be more research put into it. Um, okay. But I have I have read papers and 
it said time and time again, especially for my species that I study, um, because it's a cold water species, it typically is slower growing, it takes longer to reach its harvestable size. And with that being said, you can't just mass collect all the sea cucumbers, otherwise you're going to run out of your resource. So a, lo a lot of papers always say, you should try to focus on small yields, collect a small amount, but of the highest quality. So try to pick okay. the best sea cucumbers um, that are of the best size and take a smaller amount because they're the most valuable anyways, you'll get the most, I guess, for your money in that sense, um, instead yeah. of mass harvesting, which we know time and time again, that's just not a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely have kind of learned that from previous fisheries. Yeah, exactly. For sure. I feel like that's just something you can extend into any fishery that you want to establish is trying to take only what you need yeah. to to like make it a profitable business still because it is a business in the end. Um, but you don't want to exploit it till the fact that you don't have a business in ten years because you've used all of them. Exactly. Like if you're taking all of these sea cucumbers, like before they have a chance to reproduce or before they have the chance to even reach reproduction age or size, mm -hmm, then you're exactly. effectively like ending the fishery before it even starts. Exactly. And I guess in some ways there are, I, I know that for actual like fisheries with um, different fish, salmonid species, a lot of people have gone towards aquaculture and that's something that is also being looked into with sea cucumber species. It hasn't been done yet with Cucumeria frondosa, but it's something they're looking into. The only thing is in the Arctic, it, it would be extremely hard to set up an aquaculture industry in a very remote and also very cold location. <laughs> Definitely. And I know both of these like sustainable fisheries and aquacultures are kind of like hot takes and hot topics kind of thing. Like, mm -hmm. There's definitely a lot of disagreement about them, but I think yep. that if you can do things in a sustainable way, then as long as you're being sustainable that's really the whole yeah. yeah it's yeah it is a very hot topic you're right there um it's always something that like people are like okay but how do you guarantee and that's just it i feel like we're always continually learning but all we can hope yeah. is that if we do enough research beforehand then hopefully we have enough information to be like this is the best strategy to keep it sustainable and then obviously continuing to monitor the populations in the in the areas that you're harvesting from. Yeah, exactly. So a day in your life studying this, like how are are you collecting data? Are you using data that's already been collected? How are you doing this? What does a day in your life typically look like? So currently, as a COVID grad student, <laughs> um, I do most of my work from home. But so I have kind of two parts to it, right? So I had the biochem and the ecology side. So for the biochem, I did actually go to the lab on a regular basis. I had frozen um, sea cucumbers that were collected from the Arctic as well as from Newfoundland. And I had to do a lot of dissections and sampling and collect tissues. Um, and so that will be used for all the biochem stuff. But fortunately, I was originally supposed to be doing the biochem analyses myself. But with the way things are with COVID, you just can't just go to any lab anymore. So we had to send some of them off to different places within Memorial University to have them analyzed, which was convenient and super awesome because it keeps me on track to finishing. Um, yeah. But it's just something I wish I could have done myself. And then yeah. the other part of it was the ROV videos. 
which comes in with the ecology side of things. And those were actually collected by a committee member before I even started and they were given to me. And so I've learned how to analyze these ROV videos and collect data from them. Yeah, that's super cool. So why, why are you using these videos and where did these videos come from? So they deployed this ROV when they were in the Arctic on their own um, fieldwork stuff. I'm not exactly sure what other fieldwork they were doing, but they collected these videos knowing that I would use them in my project. And they're just transects of the benthos. Um, and then when I got the videos, I now put them on my computer. I watch them first. And I'm using them to really try to determine the population structure, mostly of the sea cucumbers and the sea urchins, looking at like the substrate, are we, are there lots of, is there lots of like suspended material in the water column, uh, other macrofauna. I'm just doing a, a broad assessment of the benthos essentially. Okay, cool. So is there anything like when you're looking at these videos, Mm -hmm. what are you looking for specifically? Like, is there anything that you're really like, that you'll see and you're like, ha, yes, this helps me. Or like, is it mostly just kind of like, okay, I am observing. Yeah. So it's, it's, at first it's kind of like, I didn't know what to look for. I just had different parameters or criteria that I wanted to collect. Um, and basically as I was watching videos or I actually, not even just watching the videos, I'd clutch frames from the videos and I'd be looking at each still frame because that's easier than a moving video. Um, I would collect my data from those different parameters I had set. But when I'm looking at it, I have no idea yet. I have, I'm like, okay, cool. I've said <laughs> I found seven cucumbers today and six sea urchins and lots of suspended material. Like I just, you don't really have anything that like is like an aha moment when you're watching it okay. it's more like later on now I'm like in the stage where I'm using that data and I'm like putting it through um into like into graphs or anything something like that and I'm trying to find trends or like okay, okay. the abundance of sea cucumbers is greatest when the substrate is like this kind of thing so I'm just trying to find okay. trends and trying to distinguish or characterize like their habitat in the arctic which okay. has been a learning curve to say the least. <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, are you using like different statistical so software to do that too? Yeah, so I have um, have some R experience. We kind of learned it a little bit in undergrad and I've used it a little bit now. So I'm trying to use it for stats. But for graphing, I will probably hopefully use different programs like Primer that's a multivariate um ecology software so it kind of does multiple parameters it produces really cool and interesting graphs and so I'm hoping I can use that more um, because oh. I am not an art expert and I do not want to go down that road yet <laughs> I have said it before on this podcast and I will say it till the day I die R is the bane of my existence I yes. genuinely don't know oh, what's going goodness. on ever yes oh my gosh we had a staff course totally off topic but we had to use R and I was like you do one thing wrong and your code is so angry at you you just get error messages oh. one after the other I'm like nope it's not worth it nope nope I took a class that was literally it was called like biometrics and it was literally just like how to use R and I still 
have no idea what's going on. And I like, Mm -hmm. thank God for my friends that were in that class with me because I would not have passed that without them. I truly Mm -hmm. am that pro. I went to my prop's office, I think at least twice a week and just sat down and was like, it's not working. What's going on? Yeah. It's a lot of trial and error. And the, the advice I got from the TA was, you know, if you get an error message, copy, paste it into Google and search how to fix it. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I will never forget, like, my prof standing at the beginning of class. He's like, you're going to be Googling everything in this class. And I'm like, okay, great. Uh, I was going to do anyways, but glad to know that everyone else will be too. Like, cool. Yes. I think what's important to know with our, like, statistical software is that, like, not everyone knows everything that you're supposed to be doing. Like no one can just write the code. Maybe some people can, but like not many people mm-hmm. are just like writing a full code off the top of their head. Like there's going to be a mm-hmm. lot of people that are like, how to do this are like how to do this are like kind of changing, oh, yes. changing that up and like figuring it out on their way. So like it's a uphill battle and it's okay and we'll get through it, but I just, I yeah. don't like it. I don't like it either. And I feel like, I've heard it time and time again from people I know who are good at R. They're like, it's just like learning a language and eventually you just understand. I'm like, I don't think that will ever be a thing for me, but I'm going to, I'm just going to keep working at it. You know, trust, trust you somehow. As long as you're trying and you can figure it out enough to get through your project, that's what matters. Exactly. Exactly. I just want to make sure at the end of the day, you're giving good stats and that it's a reliable set of data. (laughs) that is a great point I think I've told this story on the podcast before but I was doing a project one year for school and it was kind of like a independent study but like not really it was within a whole other course and we Mm -hmm. had to present our stats and like our whole presentation to the whole the whole it was marine semester so we were all like in the field for the whole semester and we were doing like an independent study there and we were presenting the results and I had gotten some help with my stats but like not I did not understand what I was doing and I presented I'll never forget the look on everyone's faces when I presented a p-value of 3.6 times 10 to the negative 900 oh no yeah so I remember like, when my prof just like raised his hand and he at the end and he was like can you go back to your stats page and I was like no I cannot no I don't want to look okay. at it anymore nope. I think oh, sorry, it, being an undergrad, you're just like, at the end of the day, it's got to put a number down. It's got to be okay. But that number makes no sense. <laughs> oh, it, true. I was like, and I remember like kind of walking it through with one of my profs at the time. And I was like, I don't think he was really paying attention to the questions I was asking. Cause I was like, I got this number. Should I just put zero? And he was like, no, you should put the number. And I was like, okay, but this number makes no sense, but okay, cool. Sounds good. Sounds great. <laughs> just take their advice. Go with it blindly. <laughs> be a little naive you'll learn eventually the real number <laughs> that is phenomenal advice I'd like that on a t-shirt be a little naive go with whatever they tell you just, just put that p-value down go with it I love it okay so we really go on tangents a little bit but yep. back to the sea cucumbers what has been kind of like the in your master's the thing that you were not expecting about sea cucumbers or about your master's that either like surprised you you loved it or is kind of the bane of your existence now Mm, it's a hard question actually because I feel like going into it I I really didn't know much about sea cucumbers um and I it was everything I feel had to be learned learned from scratch so I feel Mm. like 
I'm at a stage now where I feel a lot more confident in what I know. But then again, I always know that there's so much more to know. And that's why I really appreciate like having a good supervisor who's continually teaching me things or sends me papers. So I'm like, I need, I need all the help. <laughs> and um, yeah. I think one of the hardest things was not even just the project itself, but just like learning to be a master's student. That was the hardest part. Yeah. Sea cucumbers, you can learn them. Being a master's student is like another like uphill struggle. So. so if you had like any hypothetical advice for anyone who potentially is starting their master's, definitely not me uh, who's starting <laughs> soon, but like hypothetically, what would your, like, what was hard about being a master's student and what do you wish you would have known going into it? Um, I feel like I wish, I feel like I wish I knew just like the expectations more, just like, what are your, like, what is realistic? Because when you go into it, I, you just, there's just so much that has to be done and there's no back, like exact timeline for anything. Like you're not given a formula, like you are an undergrad and it's really up to you to structure your time. So the time management was like, oh, I'm supposed to do all of these things, but like somehow do them all together on a daily basis and finish them on time. What? (laughs) And I feel like my advice to any new grad student would be, you know what, don't be hard on yourself when you feel like you don't know what you're doing. I feel like that's really normal. And the best thing you can do is just like, reach out for support from your friends who are like maybe already started or from your supervisor because at the end of the day they really do want you to like succeed right and yeah. I feel like it's, it's it's in your mindset that you want to do everything perfectly but you're learning so it's okay to feel a little bit lost and confused um but just know that there's always someone who can help you Absolutely. It's always important to have that like support system around you, especially of mm-hmm. people who know what you're going through. Like you can have your friends and your family who have not gone through like a master's program or even a bachelor's uh, program supporting you, but they're never gonna like get it for lack of a better term. Like mm-hmm. it's nice to have the people who understand the stress and the pressure that you're under. Yeah. And like currently all of my friends are, are grad students as well. So I feel like we all can relate to each other when we're struggling or when we're just having a moment of like a mental block or just anything. You just go to them and be like, Hey, you've already done this. You like, what, what can I do? Like, how can I do this better? And that's been a huge, um, helpful thing for me, especially I didn't really like do the undergrad thesis thing that most students do before their master's. I did an honors program. You do like a little project, but I didn't do an undergrad thesis. So I I didn't know many of the the aspects of what you have to do for a thesis, like the proposal writing even. I had no idea. I went in so blank and I was like, I don't know anything. But I am in the same boat as you there. I never, I never did even like I didn't do, I did that like independent study, but I didn't even do an honors or like a like mini thesis or anything like that. I had a prof who I, in my think third, second or third year, I reached out to him and I was like, Hey, I think I'd be interested in working with you. And I didn't have the best GPA at the time. And he told me straight to my face, no, I don't think you're smart enough. So I was kind of like, okay, well that destroys my academic uh, wants and like wanting to continue this and I didn't even like I was like I'm not going to continue this I'm not going to bother doing an honors or anything like that and then I like 
did it and I talked to some other profs and they're like hey like you de- that definitely is not true you are intelligent and you can go on and do this if it's something you wanted to do and I was like oh cool yeah I'm gonna do. And like so I don't have that under my belt and mm-hmm. it's kind of been a learning experience for me even just getting accepted so I can imagine like actually once you're in it like you it is going to be kind of a a big learning whirlwind yes <laughs> yeah definitely a whirlwind but uh I think it's it, it, it's worth it you know it's it's all about, yeah, like you said, the skills and the learning. So as long as like you're happy with what you're doing, and that's like, I think the most important thing, then, and then I think you're going to succeed no matter what. Good. Yeah, absolutely. So that was another little tangent right there. <laughs> it's hard <laughs> not to go on tangents when you talk with your friends because you're like, oh yeah. And what about this? And what about that? You guys are all lucky that we're just talking about marine-centric stuff and grad school stuff. Like, we could go on forever about the most random of things. Oh, yes. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so, we were talking about the fishery and the sustainability. So, you yeah. said that your paper is kind of not going to be the one, obviously, to decide yes fishery or no fishery. But you think it'll be used uh-huh. as kind of like the the baseline to open the discussion a bit more? Yeah. I think because I'm kind of this looking at like it's never really been studied before in the arctic sea cucumber um so knowing it's biochemistry and those aspects is good to know the value of the sea cucumber for a market but it's not going to necessarily tell you okay how can we sustainably harvest this sea cucumber also so looking at the ecology side of things maybe that gives us some insights about where to locate mm-hmm. them where to find them but it won't be enough to tell us about their life history so how long does it take for these Arctic sea cucumbers to reach maturity or to reach marketable size? So my project isn't really looking at those things. So I'm hoping that in the future, as this progresses, there'll be further papers or research projects that go more into the life history and the specifics of that sea cucumber in that region. Um, just because I think that's what's needed before the industry is uh, like established there. Yeah, absolutely. You're doing your master's at Munn in Newfoundland, but you're studying yeah. the Arctic. So like, is that just what your supervisor was studying? Like what brought you to Munn and what made you kind of want to study this? Like what was yeah. appealing to you about doing this project, working with your supervisor or being in Newfoundland? Yeah. So I originally had reached out to my supervisor and approached her actually to do a project. And at the time, um, there wasn't any space for a new master's student, but she said, no, don't be discouraged kind of thing. We will put you kind of like on our list of prospective students. Um, and then she reached out to me probably about six to eight months later during the summer and was like, we just received funding for doing uh, an Arctic project. And I was immediately fascinated because I feel like the Arctic is one of those places where it's like a one in a lifetime place to go visit and there was this prospect of doing field work there and having this big role of collaboration with the local community and I really love being able to collaborate and to share the science because what's the point of doing the science if you can't share it especially with the people who are like who it like it matters for right so I was really excited excited for all of those aspects and that's like when I decided to jump on this project right and I knew I wanted to go to Newfoundland because in my mind already so it seemed like the best case scenario uh and then obviously with COVID-19 
things obviously dramatically changed. There's no traveling. And so my prospects of doing field work, um, or even now are like kind of canceled until things kind of go back to a normal. So although I'm not going to the Arctic, probably within my own project, I'm still happy that I've had this, um, a project that collaborates with the Arctic. And I'm hoping still by the end of it, there's going to be a moment where I can share my research with the, the local community and how that collaboration. Yeah. Absolutely. That would be awesome. That would be amazing. Yeah. Like, uh, like I think it'd be a dream to go to the Arctic. Like, I don't know. It's just, you don't think, oh, I want to go on a vacation to like the Arctic because it's cold. <laughs> and, you know, there's sometimes the limited daylight and all those things. But I feel like because it's such a dramatic and different landscape, I think it would just be surreal to go there and do field work. And I, I just, yeah, I was blown away by that prospect. Well, you know, you almost got the exact same experience when you first moved to Newfoundland. Yes, yes, it definitely did. <laughs> so you moved to Newfoundland at potentially the most optimal time for anyone to go. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that story? Yes. So <laughs> I decided in the summer when I had this, this like project basically like proposed to me I was like cool I'm gonna wait I don't want to go in September I'll go in January and I don't know why I thought that was a good idea but I went to Newfoundland <laughs> January 2020 um and I was there the week before Snowmageddon so I get there things are going well and all of a sudden they're like oh we're gonna have this really large snowstorm where it's it's probably gonna shut down the city and I was like eh no way like, I've seen snowstorms, like, if snow's in Ontario, I'll be fine. They were not kidding. <laughs> it's so Snowmageddon <laughs> happened, and if you don't know Snowmageddon, is basically the world, like, not world, but, like, it was record-breaking uh, snowfall for Newfoundland in, like, the last, like, I don't know, 30 years or something. And some areas got, like, seven feet of snow, and because of, like, the wind and the drift, like, people were buried in. It was crazy. Probably one of the most surreal storms I've ever experienced but at the same time I was so happy to be part of it I was like wow I'm a part of history now like I've seen this I've experienced like one of the greatest snowstorms probably in Canada I don't know <laughs> but that was like the first thing basically I experienced when I moved here and I was like well now everything's shut down for two weeks um it was really strange actually like it was kind of like the practice run to COVID-19 because we were basically homebound. Oh, it really was. It was. It was It was kind of weird. It's like we already were like forced to stay home because the roads were unsafe. Like you couldn't walk because the roads were so buried. And if a car was on the road and you're trying to walk, like it was not good. But um, basically it was like the practice, the training wheels to COVID-19. So for those wondering, um, Snowmageddon was actually ranked top five, so fifth in the top 10 stories uh, or top 10 weather stories or weather events in the year 2020. The winds were blowing 134 kilometers per hour and there was snowdrifts up to 15 feet high in some places. Yeah. Yep. So it I really, like, Snowmageddon is not a like over dramatization here. Like, it is really, it was. It, I'm sure felt kind of apocalyptic seeing everything it really that dead did. that quiet. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's either the first or second day after. I mean, I had to shovel at a driveway for like literally the whole day. 
it took me a whole day. I was like, oh my gosh, like your arms were so sore from shoveling. I didn't have a snow blower. Um, and I just actually remember going on my first walk after Snowmageddon happened. And like, it was just, it felt weird. Like you were basically at the, like the top tree branches or you'd be walking in the, the snowbanks were taller than the stop signs. And it just felt so surreal almost. Like you're like, this is not normal. It's not normal. And you're sitting there like, why did I choose to come here right Yeah, now? exactly. It was like, okay, I moved here. The biggest snowstorm ever happened. And then shortly after, like it was by mid-March, and we were living in a blissful little island bubble, not thinking much about the world. And then COVID-19 happened and everything shut down. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> You really have had the worst luck in over there. That is too funny. Oh my gosh, yes. It and has yet been. you managed it's to make the best of it. Yeah, honestly, I would not have changed anything. Like living in Newfoundland, even now during this weird pandemic time, has been a blessing. Well, Rachel, it was awesome to have you on the podcast today. And thank you so much for teaching me so much about sea cucumbers. I think I know more than I ever expected to know about them <laughs> at this point. Yes, I'm glad. I'm going to make you a sea cucumber enthusiast now. <laughs> I think I'm pretty close to being one, I think. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Jill, for having me today. Like, I'm so, super excited. I'm always like so happy to share my own research and my experiences and hope that hopefully someone listening like enjoys it or was like wow sea cucumbers maybe I should do that too (laughs) absolutely I look forward to hearing like where you are in the future and like what comes of this study and whether or not that fishery is actually created or not yeah definitely same honestly same Thank you for listening to another episode of the Water Women podcast. I love sharing these stories with you, and I love that you love to listen. Make sure if you like the podcast, you're leaving a review and liking and subscribing to the podcast. It really helps us out. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Water Women Podcast and on Twitter at Water Women Pod. You can also check out more from us, including quizzes, blog posts, and shop our site at waterwomenpodcast.ca. Thanks again for listening, and until next week, stay salty.